Hello, and welcome to our New Year's bonus episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. We would like to wish our listeners and viewers a very happy 2021. And to celebrate, we have a special guest today. It's actually his birthday. Happy birthday. Yeah, woohoo. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> up until recently, I had not seen since I was in sixth grade, Dr. Casey Schaap is the research consultant and co-founder of the Ology Research Group. And today we'll be talking about the hero's journey and how his work on gang culture helped him to better understand his own personal life story. Thank you for joining us. No, oh, thank you. I turned 20 this year, so... 20? Like ah, yeah. 20? Oh my gosh, no, you look amazing. I don't know what happened. I do. Thank you. How do you have a job at 20? <laughs> <laughs> and a PhD. I'm just special. Yeah, you know. <laughs> it's skincare. <laughs> <laughs> After a certain age, you just stay at 20. You don't still go up. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened to me. That's exactly what happened to me. Well, uh, tell us. <laughs> well, tell us what drink are you having for the show? Followed by a little bit about yourself. I mean, I know all about you, but they don't know about you. So so tell us. Tell tell the listeners and the viewers about you, Casey. <laughs> well, I'm having coffee. Um, yeah. Because... You're in London. I'm in LA. So well, I'm not in London, in but I'm. I, oh, I I'm do know saying, where it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm in somewhere in England. Somewhere. Somewhere in. You know, it's weird because I when I when I think of where you know I know you're not in London, but in my head it's like London because you're in the UK. I associate the two are the same. I know. So sorry. No, no, um, but you know it's funny because um, every time. So whenever I talk to family and stuff, and I know you know people who live abroad or whatever, there's always like that city. You know, whenever somebody thinks of, okay, you live in, I don't know, you live in the U.S. And whenever I lived, in, when I lived in Italy, it was always like, ah, New York. I'm like, yeah, that's like <laughs> one city. That's it. That's the one city. So now it's London. So people will go, oh, how's London? I'm like, I'm surrounded by sheep. <laughs> <laughs> and cows and like two other people. That's it. That's just me. So, I mean, I'm sure London's lovely. I haven't been there in a while. <laughs> I've been oh there in a long while, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's the thing living in cities, but um, I don't know. I don't know. I was going to well, say, that. yeah, go on. Yeah, no, I, I was listening to your other podcast and you were saying that your city is where Pride and Prejudice is, you know, the, yeah. the town. Oh, uh, is it? Where was Pride book. and Prejudice? I mean, I mean, there are houses that definitely look like it. Like there's one that's about a stone's throw from our house. And mm -hmm. whenever we walk there, I just feel like like Jane Austen's going to like come out in a pretty dress Ooh. with like a like a bouffant. I don't know. She's just and there's horses and it's beautiful. And I'm like, I'd love to go in there, but I don't think I'm allowed <laughs> I'm sure they have yeah. big fences and stuff, but it's it is a beautiful place to live. I mean, I think if you like the quiet, though I will say when we moved here, we were on a train. Mm -hmm. Um, I was on mm -hmm. a train coming home, doing my thing. Yeah. And um a bunch of these people were having a good time. And one of the guys said to me, he goes, So where do you live? And I told him the village where I lived, and he goes, Why would you live there? And I was like, <laughs> there's nothing to do. And I was like, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice and quiet. There's no drunk people on the street at three in the morning. It's oh, wow. you can see the stars, but then it's like, wow. you know, 10 minutes on the train to Oxford. So it's like, you, if you want the city thing, you can get the uh -huh. city thing, but then, you know, it's like the introvert dream. Like I love people, but like, I don't know if I want you in my house. So, you know, there's, 
<laughs> that way you can kind of like balance it out. Boundaries. You, you yeah. Have boundaries. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Totally, totally all about the boundaries for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I got to say, so we're having the banter here. We're catching up and I know yeah. it's, people don't know, people don't know, you know, about your story necessarily. So I kind of yeah. want to give people like a little synopsis of how did, how do we reconnect? Cause we hadn't seen each other since, since Great Falls Elementary. <laughs> Oh my god, I know. I know. I know. And yeah. there's a song apparently. Great Falls Elementary. Colors unfurl. <laughs> <laughs> and my sister used to sing that and she was so serious when she did the hand moves. And I was like, You're such a dork. I'm it gonna use this. Move? Yeah, oh, I'm gonna wow, use this really? in 30 years and then I'm gonna put it on YouTube. That's exactly what I said to her before YouTube was wow. a thing. <laughs> oh my god, hilarious. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. here's the deal, right? So Casey and I know each other, but it's a bit of a roundabout story and I'll, I'll give Mike my, my brief version. You're welcome to chip in. But um, basically I, yeah, we grew up in the same town and your older sister, Dana was, I guess Kate, she and Kate were like best friends pretty much growing up there on the same soccer team. Mm -hmm. And one day we found out that Dana was going to get a baby brother. We were like, what? baby brother and it was like apparently you can get baby brothers from the airport and i was like i didn't know that i thought they came from hospitals so my mom um took me aside and she said you know dana's dana's got a new uh, baby brother and he's going to be coming to the house he's only been here for a week um he doesn't speak english so you know you girls need to be you know mind your p's and q's be really nice and we said, okay, cool. So you show up to the house. We're really excited to meet Dana's little baby brother. And uh, I'm going to embarrass you now. You came into the backyard. You saw my parents' pool. And without missing a beat, you stripped down to your skivvies. <laughs> and you were just about to take off your underpants. And we went, no, 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 no. Keep your clothes on. <laughs> and, and you just jumped into the pool. And you had the biggest grin on your face. And then afterwards, you sat out on a lawn chair with the biggest grin and that was my first memory of this kid getting Aww. down to his skivvies and then just like so happy to be in the sun and and then we went to after school club together and you had this freakish gift because you were you were tiny you we could we could put you in our pocket and yeah. if i know you didn't like getting picked up and i knew you were small <laughs> And so every all the older kids wanted to pick you up. You know, it's like, oh, you're so cute. Casey's so cute. <laughs> and several points where you're like, I don't want you touching me. I don't want you guys picking me up anymore. So you would get really rigid. And then suddenly this like two pound kid would turn into 200 pounds and, and we couldn't <laughs> lift you up. And then we're like, he's not only cute. He's a freak show. He's amazing. <laughs> so this was this was like the myth we created around Casey and then fast forward, I'm working on my book. You know how it is. You get distracted. Your brain goes places. And I thought, I wonder whatever happened to Dana and Casey. So out of curiosity, I did a quick search and I came across this article by the New York Times that you had written called, um, I say I have the name right now. Da, 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 da. Well, can you tell me the name of the article? And it was talking about basically your story being adopted and the yeah. lead up to before, basically before we met you. And yeah. it was called, why, um, why did she leave me there? And yeah. um, anyway, I know it's a bit of a, a thing to, to stop, you know, and then lead on into you. But um, <laughs> could you just tell us maybe a little bit about that before we, we dive into the topic a bit more? 
Yeah, no, when you sent me that email, like, and word, I don't remember an and word. Word, like, oh, wand, magic yeah, wand, not word. Wand, wand. <laughs> my and I was like, oh my gosh, it was like, you're like, oh, I was your friend, your sister, uh, your sister's friend was my sister, I mean, your sister's friend was my sister, and we mm. did this, I'm like, oh my God, I remember the Lewises. The Lewises, um, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, my fondest memory of us was our family went skiing one point together. Yes, and yes. I just like love the experience. And I remember you guys was like so nice and so kind to me. And um, and then like uh, I remember your sister kind of curly hair, but oh, and it was oh, just like oh yeah. And they, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, and she and my sister used to play soccer together. So I think that's how our family uh, connected. And um it was just it was a really small world, but mm. the article that y- you saw, um, it was doing the pandemic. I cried, and- by the way. Kate cried when she read my mom cried. We're all crying, just crying. Oh yeah. Oh, it was really good. Yeah. It's really well written. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I that article, like I cried every sentence when, when I wrote it. It was just mm. like a trip down to memory lane. And um it was uh it was uh two years in the making and um two years before that I I uh, I visited my orphanage for the first time in mm. twenty. And this was in Vietnam, years. right? In Vietnam, yeah. Yeah. I was born in, in Vietnam. Um, well, backstory is like I lost my mother when I was two. Um, I never knew my father. He was a migrant worker. Um, I lived with my grandmother and my sister. And when I was five, my sister drowned, and that's when my grandmother put me in the orphanage. And mm. um, you know, like that experience was like, super traumatic. And it, it was something that um, growing up, I, I just had a shame because mm. it was like normal kids didn't have those experiences I did. You know, like I remember picking worms out of fish and eating it because I was so hungry. And, you know, I remember like going on nights when I'm starving or like being abused. And it was just like, there was a lot of really bad memories. And mm. um, there was something I've always felt ashamed about. And um, I wanted to be, when I moved to America, like, be an American, like be Casey, the American, not mm. do the, the orphan. And um it's it, it's throughout the years because I repressed my other identity, it kind of backfired. And, mm. and I ended up doing things that I, you know, like I didn't honor myself. I, I put myself in risky situations. I, I didn't I, I picked really bad mates, you know, all the you know yeah, the bad yeah, stuff yeah. you repress your emotions. And it's just going to the orphanage for the first time in so long had just opened this floodgate of you know who am I like what's my what's my identity like what's my value and mm. you know it, it started uh, processing and I wrote that in the essay and my essay was really about like thanking all the amazing people who came into my life and made me a better person and I wanted to honor them and and mm. at the same time like deconstructing my experience and you know um trying to figure out like, why did my grandmother leave me? Like, what does that mean? Like, am I still loved? And, you know, I had this one opportunity and in, in when I was there to visit her and mm. she was only 30 minutes away. And I don't know what it was, but I made the decision right on spot saying, no, I'm, I don't need to go see her. And that's what really initiated the, 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 the article. I don't know. I'm going yeah. Long time. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. And I think, yeah. you know, I thought about this a lot because, I think when, um, so I know my mother, my mother-in-law was adopted and, um, we don't really talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, out of respect, I think more than anything else. Um, yeah. and she, 
how do I put this? I think everybody copes with trauma differently. I know from my own experiences, there are things that I've gone through that people wouldn't guess, but it's like, I'm mm-hmm. not going to advertise it out because it's none of anyone's business, really, unless yeah, it made yeah. sense in a conversation, right? Yeah. Um, but one thing I noticed that you and you and I had talked about this is that people would say, well, why didn't you go see your grandmother? And I thought, you know, it's really easy for somebody with no emotional attachment to say, I would have done blah, blah, blah. So you don't know what you would have done because you've never been through it. And why would you want to open up those old wounds when you've spent your whole life trying to close those up? So I think that, I think what was really good about your article is it was so honest and it spoke to the raw emotion that kind of (sighs) makes us who we are in terms of how we deal with difficult situations. And, And when we talk about the hero's journey, Um, Mm -hmm. This came up because you and I have been talking back and forth um, as researchers, you're a sociologist, I'm an anthropologist, um, how when we do our work, regardless of the topic, one thing that we've noticed over the years is how much we are a part of the work that we do. So um, one of the things I had in in writing this book um, that I realized was going to be a challenge because I didn't know who the reviewer was going to be and I didn't know who was going to pick it up because anthropology and I think sociology as well. um, It's very personal in terms of how we talk about our work. It's almost like having a conversation with somebody about the things that we found. And I think in a lot of disciplines, even in business, for example, there are certain um, it's almost like you have to write to a box. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you, um, you're you trained to remove yourself out of it. And one of the mm-hmm. things I knew when I wrote this book is that that wasn't going to be like that. This book was going to mm-hmm. be a lot of I statements. Mm-hmm. I was going to talk about aspects of myself and how it yeah. influenced me to make sense of the data I was collecting and the people yeah. I was talking with. Absolutely. And I knew that I diffin- if I didn't have an introductory chapter to talk about what ethnography is, why it's important to doing research, why it's important to being honest, they would read the rest of the book and say, this isn't good research or this isn't to the standard I'm used to. And it could completely discount 10 years of research. And I say these things because in talking to you, it affirmed things I'd always known is that we are part of the work that we do, whether it's the Mm -hmm. theories that we gravitate towards that make the most sense, the people Mm -hmm. that we choose to interview, the subject matter that we choose to interview. Um, Like I thought about, well, why do I study segregated schools? And... Mm -hmm. I think there was something about growing up along the Mason-Dixon line and hearing a lot about the Jim Crow laws as a kid and knowing that it wasn't a good thing and never was a good thing. And then I moved to a part of Italy where it was sanctioned by law. So uh, 2021, they still have segregated playgrounds. They have segregated lunchtimes. It's supported by the EU because the way in which this particular group of people have spun it is they said, well, we want to protect the minority against the state. So these segregated schools are legally mandated. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, this is very weird because if you did this in the U S it would be illegal. And so already I had a vested interest because I was like, how could you keep, how could you, how could you do that today? So I was going to be, I was going to be in that research because it, it meant, I don't know, it, it, it struck a chord with me. And so yeah. I think in the work that you're doing with gang culture, what I'd be interested to know is how your personal story inspired mm-hmm. you to study gang culture. How did that come about? You know, um, oh my gosh, I love having conversations with you because we're like totally in agreement. 
Because there's a, there's a well-known researcher, her name is Brene Brown, and she writes a book. Oh, Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She's all about, you know, uh, opening, like, like um, you know, sharing, being openly honest about emotions and feeling where she's coming from. And in, in qualitative research, that's called ethbucking, you know, like letting the reader know where you come from, your experience, so that way they can make an informed decision. Um the interesting thing about me was more of a self-discovery because I was always interested in how people like experience violence and how they rehabilitated themselves through like personal journeys. And and I didn't realize it, but I was like trying to figure out more about me. And um, there was this one moment in my research where I was interviewing this former gang member and the story of how I met him was pretty hilarious because I, I was attending this um, this gang anonymous meeting where like former gang members and current man- gang members meet to get, like wow. to discuss about you know their experience and just it's a rehabilitation program it's like alcohol anonymous but for gangs mm-hmm. and so I was been well, I was in that meeting for like at least two months trying to collect data and trying to get interviews and no one wanted to talk to me. Because uh, everyone's like like tats and they're all like like really tough looking and now this like kind little guys like and you're twenty years old so you know yeah, I'm twenty years old yeah <laughs> just like young and vulnerable and but like I uh, it it was based in a church and it was every single like every week I would attend but no one would talk to me so this one day I I was looking at the entrance and this this beautiful man just walked through the entrance and. I just had very ungodly thoughts about simple things. So I was like, thank God I'm not a Christian because Jesus would be very upset at the, 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 the devious thoughts they have of this man. And and I was just like, I just couldn't stop looking at him. And, you know, like I looked around the room and there were the other girls too, and they were like checking him out and like we're all hey, doing hey, the hey. same thing. We're just like, please have my babies, please. <laughs> we're just like, it was like, so at that moment, like, you know what? I'm just going to ask this number because I'm a good researcher and I'm just kind of like interview mm. him, you know, because mm-hmm. you know, he's probably an activist and, you know, I want to be like, go put myself forward. So mm, that's um, exactly it. Absolutely. For <laughs> research, the things that we do for mm. research. <laughs> and eventually, like, I got his number and we met at a McDonald's and, and, um, like, you're married now. No, I'm so sorry. I wish. Oh my God. It turns out he likes women, not men. So, uh, uh, dang it. Just, every time. Yeah, every time. Why? But, like, have you ever met a, a man who's like, they're the masculine without trying? They have this exudes, this like sensualness that they just, he just sat there and he just was just so just. He was the he dude. Just, yeah, yeah. And he was kind, he was courteous. What I noticed about him a lot was because as I was observing, was. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you wrote this in your book. I was yeah. doing observations. <laughs> Observation that we search. Um, he was cute. I mean, great. Um, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was like, he was very courteous. He was very thoughtful. When he gave answer, he thought a lot about what he said. He was super respectful with the other people around him. And he had this kind of like grace that he was walking. And it, it was just... It's one of those people where you just want to sit and have coffee for the rest of just like the whole day and the time just flying. He was just that 
he had that magnitude and I thought, oh, this guy would be really great to talk to. He would give me really good insights about thinking life as an activist. Mm. And then the moment I interviewed him, he told me, oh, I was just out of prison. I've been like four months out. I spent 25 years of my life in there. Um, I was charged with, you know, manslaughter. I killed this kid when I was 13. I stabbed him 15 times and, and, you know, now I'm out and I'm, in this, this organization trying to help other kids not join the, the gang life and mm-hmm. um and it was just like i was just blown away it's like i would never guess that he was in the gang he just did, he just didn't look like it wow. and he was he told me that the most pivotal moment in his life was um he was in prison and this white lady came and everyone was talking about her and he was thinking it's like this white lady was she gonna tell me about life like what the, mm-hmm. what the crap like what was she doing here and the lady was telling him about how her her fam- there were robbers who came into her, her, her house they tied her up they tied her family up you know they i think like they they killed her husband they raped her daughter and they all went to, to jail for life but in that process of grieving she learned to forgive them and she visited them in jail and one by one except for one uh, person she forgave them and she was talking about the power of forgiveness and how to heal and when he was listening to that he he said he was really struck by her 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 like forgiving nature. And that night, he when he was in his cell, he was the first time in his life he thought about the implications of what happened when he killed that kid and what happened to that mother who never had the experience of you know, giving that kid Christmas and then Thanksgiving or having seen her grandchildren and all that experience he took away from that kid because he was being a, like he was wasn't thinking. And he was saying that moment, he just cried and he just cried for everything. And he made the decision at that moment to be better, to choose to be a better human being. And, and that's when he started working on himself and becoming, you know, educating himself and learning about conflicts and all this stuff. And because of that good behavior, eventually, like 15 years later, he they released him on probation. Mm-hmm. And when he was saying that, like, I just couldn't help but... Like I was trying not to cry because the 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 the, the like the connection the, the the vulnerability he was sharing with me and it was just it was so powerful and in that moment it just it, it triggered something in me where I was like you know that I remember there was experience when I was in Vietnam where I had to make the choice to be a better human being and and you know like growing up you know I was abused by my uncles you know I still have scars from from their their abuse. Um, you know, like I was throwing out the, the, uh, this house, you know, like I, I lost my mother. I, you know, I witnessed the violent death of my sister. And like, and like, I always had the shame that my father hated me. And, you know, he, 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 even my father wouldn't want to take care of me. Like he just abandoned me. And just the moment when my grandmother left me, I, I just thought I was just so useless. And I thought it was so worthless. And I felt like I just didn't have anything to contribute. And the, the day when, you know, they told me that family had found me, I had that wrestling with that that thought. I was like, I'm not worthy. Like, why me? Like, why? who would ever want me? Like, I have nothing. And uh, and when I was thinking about that, I this thought in my head was like, ooh, maybe this is a chance for you to become a better person. Like, would you want to be a better person? Would, would you want to be good? And I chose that moment to be, yes, I wanted to be good. And to me, that notion of being good changed over the years, but it was a step, a choice I made to about my life that I wanted to be 
And I can relate to his story because that was that moment that he had the moment. And I think that's why I was so engaged with the gang culture because after that, I wanted to understand, you know, what happens when societies push you aside, regulated to this box and said that you can't belong in our society anymore. You're not good enough. How do people like get over that? Like, how do they, how do they find the worth to go back and to rehabilitate? Now, there are others who didn't, but some do. And I wanted to understand that aspect. So that way we could share that with the rest of society and say, hey, you might not be in a gang or you might not be in an orphanage, but here are the, the journey that we took that maybe might help you better understand your journey because we all are in a journey at some mm-hmm. point. And that was, um, that was, that was like a roundabout long story short about like how research influenced the way I looked at myself. And it was because of that research that got me to eventually go to the orphanage, which, you know, opened up about myself and that I wrote the story. And then now we're here. Um, yeah. 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 But I think that also just speaks to the importance of, of sort of the narrative of the person who's writing the story, right? Like we have a huge responsibility when we're talking about very serious topics yeah. and you want to do those people justice. You don't, you don't want to misinterpret necessarily, but, at the same time, the more you remove your voice, the less authentic yeah. it is. And yeah, then, it, and then yeah. it's just a box and it's cold and it's it's sterile. And yeah. people are not sterile. You know, people yeah. have character and layers and they're interesting. And that's why we do what we Absolutely. do because they're really fascinating. Um, uh-huh. And I guess um, one of the things I that kind of came to mind when I was looking at the work that you sent me is yeah. that the gang culture sort of functions as a makeshift family. Um, mm-hmm. And for those, especially for those who've had a tumultuous background, and I was mm-hmm. wondering how a gang can create that sort of family environment. It's a substitute family in that um, a lot of times when, uh, I mean, this is really well documented research, so it, mm. it was not coming from, from mine, but what happens is that uh, when a lot of times conditions that create a person to join a gang is, you know, structural. So um, they're, they're coming from a family where the mother has two jobs, where the dad is not there, or the, there's a lack, there's a weak family connection bond, or, you know, and there's like economically impoverished communities. So they have, they lack that sense of identity and like connection, the bonding. Mm-hmm. So when there's an opportunity where the, a bunch of other kids on the surface look like, oh, we're part of a group, we protect each other, we care about you know each other's belonging, and you know you can join, you can be part of this club. So it's super enticing because coming from a place where you don't have a belonging or you feel like you're you're from an unstable background, that's something that people crave, like your basic need, a sense of belonging. The problem with that is you're belonging with other kids. So there's really no mentor or like someone who knows better to kind of help you with like navigate that sense of belonging. So it's a bunch of kids coming together thinking, you know, they're belonging, but in actuality, they're they're basically, they don't know what they're doing. They're just, they're just trying to fit the mold somewhere. Yeah. And the, the idea of the one, the interesting about looking at former gang members is whenever I ask them about their experience, they always sent me something to this effect, which was, yes, I did a lot of bad things. Yes, I did X, Y, Z. But that experience helped me learn about like who I was as a person. It was a personal journey that I went through that I had to like mm-hmm. understand. And, um, you know, it was 
it was the, the moment that joined a gang is in the hero's journey, the call to action, which is them choosing to engage in this kind of like self-discovery. And it's a process that they go through. And there's a pivotal moment where in the journey where they have to choose, do they want to continue being this way? Or do they want to change and redefine who they are as a person? And the, the interesting thing is, um, I'm just going to like go a little bit. The hero's journey is actually was um, direct, developed by this guy named Joseph J. Campbell. And he was a literature scholar. And what he said was like, when he was looking at mythologies and folks and legends, and even to like, was that a lot of the stories share similar archetypes, you know? The person called to add to an adventure, they rejected, but then finally pushed into it. They're going through lots of trial and tribulations, they fail a lot, and then somehow that that, that most like humble <coughs> moment, like a mentor comes in and or or something happens and makes them change the way they look at themselves. And then they become this, they have, they have this epiphany that they bring back to the community and they basically try to um to share that knowledge. Um so my interpretation is that, it, but it's just mine, which is a hero's journey for me is an intense introspective journey about ourselves that ultimately leads us to the realization that we're part of a larger community. And that's why we go back and we want to engage with the larger community because in a sense, it's about a realization of being part of the whole. It's a journey into understanding we're part of the larger community. And a lot of times when they're the former gang activists who, who join, that's what the main narrative is. I want to change my community. I want to make a difference. I want to like help these kids to like prevent them from, from doing the mistake that I made. And I want to be there for them. Um, it's crazy, right? It's <laughs> fascinating. I mean, you know, there's, <clears throat> there's, sorry, there's so much like to unpack there. And I think um, one of the things you'd also said is that um, former gang members, um, they viewed the gang as a connection between people for mutual benefits, while also it was seen as a connection of people with purpose. And yet what yeah. you're, it seems that you're telling me is that, okay, the gang, it got them out of the, out of bed in the morning, right? It, it gave them mm -hmm. that objective, whatever that thing was, whether it was money, <clears throat> food, um, a sense of com com friendship, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. what have you. And yeah. yet now that they're out of the gang and they've had time to process it, they've had time to reflect, it seems like the purpose has shifted to say, you know, almost like this is a wolf in sheep's clothing. This sounds really good because of an immediate thing, right? I mean, you talked about yeah. when you were a child and you remember picking um, worms out of fish, right? And when yeah. you're hungry, um, it, we all get down to our most and I, I say this and not to be disrespectful, but our most carnal aspects is like we Absolutely, need to yeah. eat. We need to mm -hmm. eat. We need to sleep. We need to drink. And yeah. um, when those most basic things are taken away from us, it's like that ultimate internalization of what do I need to do to get this? Yeah, and I think yeah. that I would imagine in talking to people like that, I'm going to guess that you were quite surprised at how you could relate based on your own experiences to that sense of desperation of what do I need to do in order to survive a survival instinct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Our basic needs to be met. I, I think it's more like they view the gang as like, uh, like, see, this is not fulfilling, but it was something that they need to get by. Like the, like the most basic needs, like it was, it served a purpose in, 
um, loneliness and, you know, gain protection or in, you know, the most like the most pressing challenge they had at the time, you know, people to be aware that you exist, that you're alive. But it was it was going when they're in jail or something major event happened when they start to realize, like, what are my values? What are my priorities? Like, what kind of person do I want to be? And it was those kind of like those those um, impetus that really caused them to reflect on what kind of life they wanted to be as a person that caused the ultimate change to becoming to to rehabilitate. And know that, you know, uh, you know, gang is not a new concept. We've had gangs in the U.S. since the inception of our country. And they've always been gangs in, in um, UK and in Europe. Like they just call it different names. But even the study in gangs have been at least 100 years uh, old. You know, it's been forever. But what's changed about the gangs now in contemporary time is um, the access to firearm and the way that they become more transnational. And they're, they're doing a lot more like um, human trafficking, drug trafficking. So they're to pose a, a, like a larger, you know, um, challenge and danger to society. But the impetus for joining it is always the same. How do the trying to solve the basic human needs? Um, and we can't change the problem by just like creating tougher laws or making, you know, putting money in it. We have to fix at the root, which is at the end of the day, it's like, how can you invite the person to change their identity through their own empowerment rather than forcing them to like or putting them in a box or imprison them. Yeah. Not saying that those are incorrect, but um I think there's a this there's a carrot and a stick approach. Yeah. I mean I think it seems like quite a few of these people, it's almost like they needed hope. Which I don't mean yeah. to sound wishy washy, but I mean hope is really powerful. Um, And I think, you know, again, I keep saying now, I mean, I Mm -hmm. I think people do need to hold on to hope. I mean, I had the other day, somebody said, you know, I don't understand why you're not freaking out more. I was like, what's the point? Everybody else is doing it for me. (laughs) I don't (laughs) need to do it. They've all done their favorite job. I'll just watch them. (laughs) I'll just observe their freaking out. (laughs) But, But I mean, it's that thing is you have to have that hope. And I think, but I think there's, there's also more to it in that, um, somebody needs to give them a chance. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's almost like there needs to feel like there's an, an invitation and it might not be a deliberate invitation, but like there is an opportunity there. Um, but I think, like you said, you know, your research talks about like, how do you get to that point? What is the light bulb moment that makes you go, I don't need to do this. And I think some people get there. Some people never get there. Um, mm-hmm. and And I think that's what makes your work fascinating amongst many things is that um, what is that impetus? What does it take in order to get people to turn turn their lives around? Because I mean, my dad used to work in, um, he used to, he did an internship working at a prison years ago, years and years, years ago. Yeah. And um, one of the things that was really common when people would go in, they were incarcerated. Mm-hmm. First they found religion and then they started talking about how much they missed their kids. And it's like, you yeah. know, wouldn't miss their kids, right? Understandable. Yeah. He said, but you would get so many of the same faces coming back over and over and over again. And it was almost like, I don't know. I think I think maybe you get desensitized to it when you're working in a prison after a while where you're not really sure if they're serious or if they're just playing it up or if they mean it. But they're so used to being in it. The prison, in some respects, kind of becomes a home. It becomes a family in its own way because you've been in it for so long. You know how it works that once you're you're removed from that situation, I mean, one of the things I've heard is that when you're we've been in a prison for 20, 30 years, all your friends mm-hmm. are in there. They become your inadvertent family. 
And then you leave and you leave everything behind, behind closed doors. So there's that need to almost re-offend so that you can go back to the people that you know. And I've got to imagine that that's a really hard pattern to break as well. It's so interesting that you were talking about that because um, the three main things I found that we rehabilitated a gang, a gang former gang member was religion, uh, family, community, and a sense of purpose. And this is that's the, I think there's a reason why those are such powerful triggers is because those are what reminds us that we're part of something larger and it gives us a sense of purpose that's beyond ourselves. And it's kind of ironic because the main reason, like if you have to look deep down the underlying needs for why a young person would join a gang, it's because they want a sense of belonging. So it's it's a full circle. It's it's really understanding what is it that like motivate you to become, you know, someone who you aspire to be is basically connection with the community. Um, and a lot of, I, I found note interesting was a lot of these activists or former gang members, and it was, uh, it gave them a sense of purpose because they knew that their work had an impact on the community. And even though like a lot of them, it was volunteer and it wasn't paid, it was important for them to make that effort to do that, to be there to for other younger, you know, for, for uh, kids, because they knew that if they made that change, that somehow it would, I want to say like absolve from them what they did with, as when they were younger, but it was more like it gave them an opportunity to redo what they didn't do before. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it was really, really powerful. I, and, um, I think it goes back to underlying needs. Human beings are social creatures. You know, we belonging is a huge sense of our value. So um, it's so digging into that was what would help, like kind of remind us that we're part of something larger. But, you know, another thing was interesting. I was thinking about this was that lady had an impact on a former gang member who had an impact on me. And I was reflecting on the power of quality research and your experience, you know, like growing up in Great Falls and then going to Italy, something triggered in you that you saw their experience in Italy that you want to study, but you would never know how much, how your book will influence someone else who had similar experience who will affect other people. And I think that's what, like, what I love about qualitative approach is because it's a human story that we're, we're, we're telling that we all can relate. Um, that we all like intrinsically know and we can tap into. Mm. Um, yeah. And you can get my book now for four ninety five. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes. I'll be no. the first. <laughs> no. Thanks. No, I, I, I really think that that is incredibly powerful. And I, I mean, I think that's the point, right? I mean, when we, when we go into these projects, it's, it's not just that we're, um, it's, it's almost like we have to do it. Does that make sense? Like we, we get in, we get involved in these people's narratives and we feel like somebody needs to hear it because if nobody else is hearing it, then, you know, it's kind of like a a conversation you want everybody to have access to. Um, It's the same with, you know, you know, podcasting is a great way to do it. But I think um, your story in particular is like, like you said, it is going around sort of full circle and making sure that these stories aren't lost. You know, that he's uh-huh. not just another statistic of some guy He was in prison. Now he's out. We're just waiting for him to mess up. Yeah. If you can say, no, I had this really interesting conversation. Maybe we should approach these individuals in a slightly mm-hmm. 
maybe in a drastically different way, maybe that is the impetus that is needed in order to help kind of shift the paradigm in terms of, of how gang culture is treated by society, you know? Um, I guess maybe before we sort of wrap up, um, when you were doing this research, I was really curious about this because um, there's a lot of ethical implications in working in an environment like this. I know uh-huh. a researcher at Oxford some years ago did work on the mafia. Uh-huh. It's a whole other story. And yeah, um, he was actually looking at trust and uh-huh. he was wor- working with mafioso members. And I, I was kind of worried for him um, because uh-huh. he was publishing a lot of the sensitive material and granted it was in English, but you know, the Indrangheta is everywhere and yeah. they've got a lot of connections. And I just wondered, you know, maybe not in your case, because I think yours is coming at it from a more sympathetic standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just wondering, um, what were the safety precautions that you had to take, not just in doing the field work, but also writing up? And what were the ethical implications behind it? Well, so, yeah, because they are, was a very tricky aspect of doing the research. So how I got around it was I interviewed former gang members who left the gang life. So, and it's, and the way I positioned was I not only looked at former gang members, but I looked at law enforcement and gang activists. And I, I, uh, I was studying the aspect of culture, how they created narratives and how they, uh, like, under externalize the conditions and develop a basically a grounded theory to predict um, how the experience of violence shaped the way they look at the, the situation. And so towards the end, I just had two questions and knew exactly what kind of experience they had, which was like, how would you find a gang? And if you had unlimited resources and power, how would you solve the problem? Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't have to, so I didn't have to go look at current gang members and I didn't really focus on what they did. I was only focused more on the thoughts and how they um, view, like, told their stories in the way rehabilitation. So, um, so I didn't have to um, you know, disclose any information or things that would put them in jeopardy or like put myself in a, a jeopardy uh, position. Um, it, it's it, it was a very a complex study, get, like complicated into ethically oh, because yeah, I, I didn't want to like. I was um, going to say your curac yeah. form must have been lengthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I just bypassed all that and just said, okay, you know, they had to be older. They had to be at least an adult. So that way mm-hmm. I didn't have to deal with kids yeah, and yeah. they had to have experience, but they're not doing anything criminally, you know, um, that I'm reporting. So okay. for me, it was just more like, what did you, you know, what was your thoughts? How do you define it? Um, you know, it was very, very vague about the experience. Okay. No, that, that makes yeah. sense. And I, I think that that also speaks to, you know, when you're doing this research, you don't necessarily have to go so deep into it that you're meeting members off gangland and having to get initiated and all that jazz. So yeah, <laughs> probably a good thing. Yeah. Um, I got to say, uh, before we close, your New York Times story is going to be available as a podcast episode for mm-hmm. the show Modern Love. Can you tell us roughly when you think it's going to be available? Oh my gosh. Uh, maybe later this year. Um, like later this year, 2021, since we're Yeah, later this year, 2021. Yeah. Okay, just checking. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're currently doing season one right now. And um, I just had the interview in the recording. Um, it might be my voice as narrating, or it might be a professional. So I'm hoping it's a professional. Really? Because... I like your voice. And if you want to see on weird. YouTube, Hey, write a comment. Uh, Say, I like, <laughs> I like Casey's uh, voice. He should do it. Why not? Uh, hopefully. Um, 
but um, it's really, really awesome. They, they changed their format. And so um, I, you know, it was just so crazy that they accepted it because I, during April 2020, I submitted thinking, ah, you know, they're not going to accept it. I mean, because I have 9,000 submissions each yeah. year and only pick like 52. So I was like, ah, yeah, the, this is probably nothing. And so, you know, a couple months later, like, oh, we love it. You know, we want to put in the, the the piece. I'm like, what? It, it, I'm still incredulous that it was in the article. And you then shouldn't be incredulous. Like, you should be proud. You should be like, yeah. It, it's a weird feeling. It, I guess it's, you want it's to be of, on the show. Come <laughs> on. Mentally. I know. Yeah. I, I, it's hard because it goes back to like my worst. Like every, anytime when something good happened, I'm like, do I deserve this? Like, why yes. did you pick me? Yes. Like, or me? That's my immediate like reaction but it's something i did like learn to be like okay yes that was a good work you know you can do it <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely so, yeah. and we're gonna keep updated um anything new that comes up as the show comes up when it comes out we'll be putting it up and make sure make sure any anyone and everyone gets access to it and we'll also have um thank you information on on your articles but that being said that's it from us at coffee and cocktails with your host <sighs> dr ann wand Hello, doggy. Uh, I'd like to thank Dr. <laughs> Casey Schaap for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Additional information on today's topic will be available in the show notes. In the meantime, stay tuned for more information on Dr. Schaap's guest lecture on how to transition into a business career. Coming up at the end of January, information will be available on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please feel free to hit the subscribe button and leave a comment in the box below. If you enjoy the show, feel free to support our podcast by becoming a patron where for as little as one pound per month, you can get early access to episodes as well as live guest lectures and much, much more. It's contributions like yours that help our team to keep the show going. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.